a knowledge of history isn't just an abstract thing. It's not just what you write just before you get Alzheimer's and write the history of your hospital or what Darwin died of. It's actually a living thing. And if you don't know a bit of history, you won't understand about deinstitutionalization or compulsion or mad and bad or forensics. All of these things depend on a knowledge of history. This is the Thinking Mind Podcast. Maybe we could just get started talking a little bit about, you know, your background and why you chose the career path you did. Did you, obviously, not only did you become a doctor, become a psychiatrist, you've also become something of an ambassador for mental health. Did you, is that something you foresaw at the beginning of your career? I love that, the idea that one chooses one's careers. It doesn't really ever work like that. It, it's a, a happenstance and a set of sequences that you don't predict. Had you known me at I decided I would be wanted to be a doctor when I was 15 for reasons that I genuinely can't remember, literally can't remember. There were no doctors in the family. Um, my parents, my mother was a musician, my father was a linguist. Um, but it was expected you'd go to university and do something. And I suddenly said, I want to do medicine, which came as a bit of a surprise to both me and them. Um, and... It was a surprise because I was more on the arts side. So, you know, my good subjects at school were things like music, language, uh, history, geography, things like that, and not science. And that meant that I had to then study sciences. Then I got to university, et cetera, et cetera. But you might have predicted from that moment in time I would end up being a psychiatrist because I followed that route that some psychiatrists do. We're more on the um, arts, humanities, culture side than we are on the neuroscience genetics imaging side uh, and then if you did guess I was going to do psychiatry you might have guessed I went into research because I went to research friendly universities then you might have guessed I'd come here to the Maudsley and then you might have guessed that I might have you know had an academic career at the Maudsley all of that you might have predicted at 15 but of course you wouldn't have done and neither did I. What do you think it was about research or about the process which garnered your enthusiasm? I guess there were three things one was the when it was done well, it was very elegant. And and I remember quite well listening to uh, Lee Robbins, who was the professor from um, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, but it was a very famous epidemiologist. And she came over to give a lecture. <clears throat> and she presented the work that she'd done on... They'd found the records from child guidance clinics from about the 1930s, I think, um, in America. And then she'd followed them up, and um, or nearly all of them, actually, and she'd written this classic paper called Deviant Children Grow Up. And she presented it. And there was something about that and the paper that she wrote that anyone who's not read it should still read it. It's Insight Med, actually. That it was so beautiful and so elegant and so clear and well-written, because she also had a very good command of English, um, that I just thought that's, that's kind of beautiful. And it was. And so that was one thing. The second was, by that time, you know... You'd felt that you'd found your way in clinical work. I was a reasonable clinician. I wasn't great. It wasn't bad. But I was certainly safe, as we would now say, that we didn't use that word then. But I was definitely a safe clinician. And, and I was perfectly reasonable at it. Um, and you want to then move on and do something else, as it were, that, that, that will challenge you. And finally, there's vanity. There's something still that gives you a buzz when you get a good paper and it's in the Lancet and you're about to do the press conference. And to this day, I still get excited. Mm -hmm. And there's this buzz. And this thing about the fact is, you know, if you treat one patient, that's great. 
But if you've done something that changes the care of a lot of people, that's even better. So it appeals both to your altruism, but also to pure vanity. Let's be honest. There's something about seeing your name. That's there. okay. Yeah. So I wonder if part of the beauty of you know an elegant paper is the ability to capture at least glance at what could be the root causes of, of a given problem, which is so often elusive in clinical work? Yes, certainly without research, that there isn't clinical work. I mean, you are just going blind without the knowledge of what's happened before, without being able to classify, without being able to talk about treatments in a sensible way, we would still be in the dark ages. So research is the underpinning of all clinical practice. I started out, actually, after um, I did that abortive epidemiology paper that Michael Shepard was so dismissive of, the first few things I wanted to do, I decided that I'd like to find out what the cause of delusions were, um, which is, you know, it's a core thing in psychiatry. You know, why do people believe things that are clearly and obviously not true? How can they do this? And, of course, it was a really stupid thing to do because it's unsolvable, um, certainly unsolvable then and unsolved. So I wasted a year or two. I got, I think, a review or something. And and I, what I hadn't realised that research is not necessarily the art, the art of answering the most important questions. It's answering the questions that are answering the questions that are solvable at this moment in time. And gradually, I realised that you know research is the art of the possible. What you can do. So you know, I wanted to find the cause of schizophrenia. Well, you know, I didn't, nor is anyone else still. Um, Maybe one day somebody will. Um, in fact, I'm quite a positivist on this. I think some moment of inspiration or some new kit or just some piece of massive luck, the serendipity, um, probably from the neurosciences, will kind of reveal what the moment is somewhat fuzzy and dark. Um, so, uh, so the answer to your question is that uh, what, what drives it is not, it's not saying, you know, I want to find out the cause of X. Um, it's also when 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 trainees come along and say, you know, I'm interested in research and I want to study dementia. I always say that's completely the, the wrong question or the wrong answer. What you want to tell me is what kind of researcher you want to be. Do you want to be a rat killer? Do you want to be an imager? Do you want to be a genes person? Do you want to be a trials person? Are you good with numbers? Irrespective no. of the condition. Exactly, because then when someone does find the cause of dementia, you won't be you won't be out of a job. And and that's certainly what's happened in my career. I've shifted from things to things um, for all sorts of reasons. But underneath it, I guess academically, I would say I'm an epidemiologist. But but then nowadays, many people would say, well, you're not really anymore, because that's true. You know, my, my knowledge now of I can't do my, I haven't been able to do my own analyses for a while now, but then that's probably good because I would screw it up, you know. <laughs> that's interesting. Mm. If you think about, why do you think the question about delusions is unsolvable? What, what, what is it about that particular kind of question? I think because it's fascinating, but how would, I mean, it's just not a research articulable question. You know, we don't, other than defining what a delusion is, well, it's a thing that no one else believes in. I mean, yeah. okay. it doesn't fit easily with the classical scientific method. No, it doesn't. Um, and it's too broad a question. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, everyone, you know, in psychiatry writes about it. And, and particularly in the old days when all we had was phenomenology, which I don't think 
these days, I mean, this is me going to, into my oh, better in my day bit, and so I hope you cut all this out because it makes you sound like a boring fart. But nevertheless, we were taught a lot more phenomenology, which I can't even pronounce anymore, as you've just noticed, um, than a current generation are. And this is partly through the influence of people like Michael Shepard and Aubrey Lewis, and partly because there wasn't much else we could do. And, you know, it, it seemed very important, and I still think it is quite important, but one day it will have receded into the dark ages when um, technology takes over. But for the moment, I still think it has its place. Um, do you, do you think delusions that there is a centre of a yeah. Phenomenolo- yeah. phenomenological, thank you, approach to psychiatry? I suppose if you're thinking about delusions, you can't um, stay at the level of delusion. You have to talk about beliefs. What are the architecture of beliefs in everyone, irrespective of whether they have a mental condition or not? Yes, you do. And in fact, we did do some research. I was lucky to team up with Philippa Garrity here, um, who was interested in the kind of cognitive structure of delusions and and also the way that deluded people think thought, the kind of um, uh, cognitive errors that may have let lie behind delusions. We did some work at Broadmoor with very deluded people, making them do probability games. That was quite fun, actually. And um, exposed me to forensic psychiatry, which I nearly went into. I actually enjoyed. And um, there you met very, very good psychiatrists, which you still do. Some of our best psychiatrists are in forensics, some of the best clinicians. And I, in fact, I did my PhD on crime and schizophrenia, but then um, there was an opportunity that came here. We're talking now in the middle of King's College Hospital rather than the Maudsley. And um, senior lecturer post came up when Christopher Bass left. And um, this was with Robin Murray, but it was working here at the King's side of the road. At that moment in time, there hardly anybody worked on both sides of the road. I mean, it was like a two different planets. Now it's still like two different planets, but they're a little bit closer. And we built the traffic light across Denmark Hill, which makes it safer to move between the two. But um, I, I then moved into liaison psychiatry, but I very nearly went into forensic, and partly because the clinical presentations were so dramatic and lurid. And interesting. Yes, definitely interesting. Um, and as I say, I still think it's one of the bits of psychiatry where, you know, if you look at some of the some of the people I really admire as clinicians like Tom Fahey, like Pamela Taylor, John Gunn, people like that, they were really, really Jim McKeith and um, some of these names you'll be familiar with, some you may not be, but they were really good at psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, uh, what do you think, what's, it, what's the role of a forensic psychiatrist? Well, I mean, in a way, it deals with that bit of psychiatry where, where psychiatry interfaces with the law, where, you know, people have done um, behaviours that most most other people find difficult to understand um, uh, and certainly cause harm to others, I suppose, is, is a loose way of putting it. It's also defined by the law, unlike other bits of psychiatry. And obviously, I've spent the last two years reviewing the Mental Health Act, so I've kind of gone back to something that I hadn't really done for 30 years, which is think about compulsion and compulsory treatment because my, you know, my career then took me into an area where I, you know, I've not done a section for maybe 20 years. If I'm being honest. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's um, the, the status of the, the mental health review now? Where, where are we at with that? And what's well, that, what are your thoughts on it? Okay, well, we... Uh, it's a big time. Yes, tough it check. is. It's, it's a massive this, topic. Yes. And, but, I mean, I, I, I was asked to do the review because I knew nothing about it. And in this country, 
we have this kind of political tradition that if you want, if you, if the government look, looked, they wanted to do an independent review on mental health legislation as to where should we go. And this is partly to do with the last Prime Minister, but one, um, Theresa May, um, who already few people can probably remember, but, and when they do, it's not for great things. But actually, she was interested in the difficult end of mental health. You know, other people have been interested in the easy end, the kind of touchy-feely stuff, the talking to each other, the common mental disorders bit, but no really senior politician had um, dipped their fingers into the hard end of the spectrum, you know. So the hard end would be people with severe mental illnesses, like, for example, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, the fact that compulsory detention in hospital is very common, very necessary... Well, partly it, it is the field of severe mental illness, which is the, you know, it is core business in psychiatry, but it'd been gradually going down the kind of um, public attention. Um, the Royals, for example, have done amazing work in helping in getting conversations going. It's good to talk, time to change, reducing stigma. I'm a great football fan, so the Chelsea game uh, yesterday, we started you know, a minute late so we could think about mental health. Um, and that's partly due to the royals, but they're not really able to engage with the most severe mental illness because that's rather more political. Mm-hmm. Um, it's less visible, I think, for the average person because these are people who tend to stay in the home. And yes. And, an invisible illness. And in the forensic bit, which obviously is a huge preoccupation of the mental health and compulsion, many of them have done terrible things. And, and you know, there's no doubt, no doubt about it. They've done very dangerous, frightening things that scare people. Um, but so Theresa May was convinced by some of the stuff she'd done with the police and some of her advisors that it was time to reform the Mental Health Act. So they were looking for a chair, and the first thing they look for is someone who doesn't know anything about it. And so they do due diligence, they look at all your tweets, they look at all your papers, they look at everything you've spoken, they can find it, lectures you've given, your record, and they I was well, they proved to their own satisfaction that I genuinely knew nothing about it. So that was good. So was that, was that so <laughs> well, you could be said to have a certain degree of objectivity? Well, yes. I mean, what they did find was I was very, very pro-Remain and I'd helped set up Doctors of the EU and Healthier In. And that was a problem until the PM was, was reminded that actually that was our policy at the time, <laughs> or their policy. Um, she, that was, May was pro-Remain, wasn't she, before she, well, the I think, Brexit vote? I think she actually was, I think yeah. so. But by this time, we're after Brexit, or after the referendum, and she definitely wasn't. Yeah. Um, so that was a problem. But once they got over that, yeah, it's so that no one knows what you think. And if they know what you think, if you've already written what you think should be done, you probably aren't in a good position. You know, it, it is, it's not that, the, you know, Gove said the public are tired of experts. That's not quite true. But a real expert in a subject can't really lead a review in a contested area because that person will have made it clear sooner or later in their career as to what they think should be done. Otherwise, they're not an expert. So, but in fact, it was, a, it was an amazing experience, actually. I really enjoyed it, much to my surprise. It, they said it'd be a day and a half a week, but it was a day and a half a day. And I've never worked so hard ever. But I met, it was like going back into my own past, but also into an area which really, you know, I wasn't familiar with and had changed a lot. And also, the other, it was also the great thing about psychiatry is, is that something about psychiatry means, number one, you, you, if you're not, you know, if you're doing it, you, you have to be able to empathise with other people. Otherwise, you're going to be no good at psychiatry. So including 
often difficult people, often people who've been injured by the process. So, and most psychiatrists are good at that, listening to what people tell them. We can actually listen. And it's only when I meet other doctors in senior positions and not psychiatrists, I realize that actually what we have is an essential skill. And actually not every doctor does have it. Quite a few don't. And it also means... You can be multidisciplinary. You have to embrace the social sciences. You have to deal with the judiciary. You have to work with the police. And you have to work with politics. Um, You really do have to work with politics. Otherwise, you will never get anywhere with a review. And I'd done quite a lot on that through the armed forces, through public engagement, um, through being in difficult areas, through obviously being president of the Royal College. Um, And my wife had been president of the GPs, leader of the GPs. I, by that time, had acquired quite a lot of political friends on all sides of the, of the spectrum, by the way, except most of them tended to be Remain, although I didn't know that at the time, but it turned out they were. And was not a, an ingenue into the ways of Westminster and Whitehall. And as I spent most of my time there, that was quite important. And in the end, we were able to get a good report with huge service user engagement, which was actually put forward for a prize, for an award itself. Didn't get it, but we nearly did. Uh, but, um, but meant that the mission that I got, the instructions that I got were very clear that um, the government was already, you know, in a total mess. That was clear. And that the only way this was going to get through is if we got broad consensus from all the stakeholders. If there was opposition on the day when we launched, it would be dead. And that was clear to me and it was clear to others. So we had to bring, make sure that we did something that everybody could sign up to. Mm-hmm. Now, they could say it doesn't go far enough. Some of the service user groups said that. They could say, where's the money? That's obviously what Treasury said. They, go, um, they could say, where's the, where's the manpower? That's what the Royal College said. But um, the judiciary said, where are we going to get the judges? All of that's fine. But nobody opposed it. Absolutely. And so we're working that through as we speak. I mean... It's taken, you know, you know, not telling any secrets to tell we haven't really had a government for the last however many months it is. We do now have a government. It's not the one I would have chosen, but at least it's there with a majority. And therefore, we can, so long as we continue to have support from the government, which we do, I'm pretty confident we will get a lot of what we want. Mm-hmm. So where's the, where's the process at now? We are waiting for a draft white paper. Um, and then when that's done, there will be a widespread consultation. Have you noticed consultations are always widespread, aren't they? It's <laughs> what a terrible cliche. So we'll have a widespread consultation and then it will go to parliamentary scrutiny, hopefully by both parties, well, the two main parties and the two houses. Yeah. And are there any major headline changes that you're at liberty to talk about? Or is oh, well, it... I'm at liberty to the whole lot. It's all published. All, yeah. you know, there's 159 recommendations. I can read them all out to you if you want, Alex. What but... are the changes <laughs> that you find particularly compelling? I guess there's the ones, the, the, the kind of thread that runs through it is, is it's time to bring greater respect for if you are on the right, we would call it choice. And if you're on the left, we will call it rights, but it's the same thing, human rights. It's that even when people are detained, that they still have rights that need to be respected. And it was quite clear that we've fallen behind in developments in the law and developments in other countries. And so the thing that I would think unites maybe a quarter of all the recommendations is greater respect for autonomy, that we'll have to pay more attention to patients' wishes and preferences, particularly if they're expressed in a certain way when they have capacity before they get well, before they get ill is difficult, but many, as you know, many of our severely ill will 
get better and then get ill again. So if they then have clear views as to how they would like to be treated next time around, these will be given much greater force um, and much greater protection and um, uh, uh, more ability to um, appeal against decisions, uh, which will cause some a uh, little bit of churn when it starts, but um, doctors um, are sensible people and they will rapidly adapt to mm -hmm. the way the system will now work to make it easier for themselves and better for patients. Mm -hmm. So there'll be the use of things, could you call it an advanced directive? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, they are advanced directives. Now, of course, advanced directives exist already, but only about, I think, 4% of, of, of our patients have them, partly because they know that they have no force. They'll have more force now. So nothing will ever be 100%. So I, I had kind of two guidelines. One is in psychiatry, nothing is absolute. So nothing is ever 100%. And second, uh, we wouldn't have a minute more mandatory training. Those are the only two kind of stipulations I said. These are the two things we go. Nothing will be absolute. So yeah. always um, there will be a way in which in crisis, you know, doctors will still be able to do what they think is the right and best, but it will be now more limited. And where there is a choice, a patient will be much, find it easier to, and the obvious one would be people who just don't want a depots, but will take oral. Now we know depots are better. But if there's no reason why orals aren't okay, then they will pretty much be allowed to do that, even though it's not the best treatment, as long as it's good enough. No one can be forced to prescribe homeopathy. No one can make it, well, you can make an advanced directive, but it won't be, won't be followed. Um, no one can say, I want to be treated by the queen. And even the toughest one, which is there are people who say they would rather die than have ECT, We've tightened up that to make it more difficult to give ECT against consent, but still not impossible. Nothing is impossible. No doctor can be made to do something they won't do. So that will be there. Um, but if someone makes a choice, that is when they had capacity and is witness that they have capacity. And someone, usually the doctor, but it doesn't have to be, has you know, witnessed it and that this is a reasonable thing to do. It's going to be much, much harder for us not to do it and the patient will be able to appeal and a judge in tribunal, single judge, which is what judges do very well, will be able to say, well, to the doctor, I don't think you've made the case why you should overrule this patient. I, know, I suggest you do what they want or find something better. So there'll be, there'll be teeth. In the end, finally, there will be. Otherwise, doctors won't do it. And it'll also be clear when you do a section, you won't be able to do the section unless you follow, it'll, it'll be electronic, that's what Matt Hancock wants, it's the only thing he wants really is electronic records here. It'll be electronic, it will say, is there an advanced directive? If it says yes, um, then it will say, are you going to follow it? And if you say yes, that's fine. And if you say no, you're going to have to say why. So you're going to have to write some homework, which can then be challenged. So you can still not do it, but you have to expect you've got to give your reasons and you have to understand those might be challenged. Yeah, so just like the sectioning process itself, the decision to not follow an advanced directive will be subject to an appeal with a judge. Yes, but quite quickly at the moment it yes. isn't. The only way you can appeal at the moment is through a judicial review, which is impossible to do. And so we'll all, we're also bringing ourselves in line with the European Convention on Human Rights, um, which, of course, we may not be party to, if some of the rumours going around are true, but they're actually already established in British law, so it's British law we'd have to follow. But um, we are not following uh, 
uh, European Convention, particularly in the first three months of detention, uh, where most countries allow earlier appeal. So there will be a new right of appeal. It will be largely about treatment and medication, if I'm being honest. That's, that's the flashpoint so often. And the end result is that um, we think that our um, RCs, clinicians, will um, be more flexible and less bound by nice guidelines. But again, absolutely clear, no one will do anything that's dangerous. No one will be forced to do something they won't do. That's impossible, and no judge would ever, ever force that anyway. But they may have to make compromises where at the moment they don't. Mm -hmm. So it's just about giving people more, like you said, choice slash rights and more yes. flexibility in the way their treatment is administered. Yes, it is. Um, and then other things we want to do is to reduce the uh, racial disparities that are there, very clear and obvious. They've been there since I was a junior. Um, but they're getting worse, mm -hmm. particularly in areas like CTOs, community treatment orders. You're 10 times more likely on a CTO if you're a black um, uh, ethnicity than if you're not, which is, you know, we, we know we know that people from BME background are more likely to get severe mental illness, but not 10 times more likely. Yeah. That's just, you know, that's uh, well, What do you think the cause for those disparities is? Uh, it's a good or, question, isn't it's it? A, it's multifactorial. But yes, it is. Um if you read the report um, and the particularly opening bits that I wrote, you know, in my own voice, um, wrote other bits where that's actually me and no one else. Um, I think we have to accept the fact that um, that we are subject to some of the same biases that everyone else is. Why would we not be? Um, I would like to think that maybe we're less subject to those biases and people in other bits of medicine or in other bits of society, but I don't really have evidence for that. And I do think some of the stereotypes that we have of the big, black, dangerous man, uh, schizophrenic, um, do affect our judgments, mm -hmm. even though we would be, and I was, quite reluctant to accept that. But the evidence really is fairly compelling. Mm -hmm. And you know, the beginning of starting to change things is first of all to accept there's a problem and second to collect the data to show that there is and to start the kind of feedback loops to reduce it. We won't eliminate it. Of course we won't. When Mrs May announced this review, um, if you remember your recent history, it was at the party conference, the Conservatives Party conference. It was the one that went horribly wrong for her when she started coughing and then the stage collapsed and a comedian got on stage. Well, the very last thing she said before she coughed was to announce a mental health act review. She then said, we will end stigma and racism. And I'm thinking... I, where did that come from? We're not going to end it. Of course we're not. And then she mentioned my name and then she started coughing. <laughs> well, <laughs> so obviously it's important to acknowledge there are all these forces playing. Yes. Um, we, we, we don't in any way claim we're going to end those things, but um, of course we're not. And in, in terms of, you know, how these, um, how these disease processes start, it's, I think it would be reasonable to say that being um, in an ethnic minority is in itself stressful and we know stress plays such a huge role in the etiology of mental disorders it, we, we there are many ways in which we moved on from when i was doing schizophrenia both clinically and research wise this was you know a long time ago before the first world war whenever it was um certain arguments have moved on i was rather pleased to say one is we moved away from the last mental health act that was really was about public safety and the stigma of mental illness hasn't gone away but it's got better and a younger generation are far more accepting of severe mental illness and other, than, than, than our generation was. And that gave us 
a huge freedom that my predecessor who had done the review 25 years ago did not have. The second was the discussion on ethnicity, which has changed. It was, it's, there seems to be now a reasonable acceptance from the epidemiology that people from a BME background are more likely to develop severe mental illness. Um, and this isn't just misdiagnosis and racist psychiatrists. Um, and But on the same time, it's also, I think, completely accepted that one of the big causes of this is social deprivation, experience of prejudice, experience of racism, etc. And I got this when I, you know, I was made to understand it much better during the review, talking to um, some of the people on the review who actually live close to me, where I live in Lambeth, but that their view of the bus that I go on every day and the cafes I eat in, drink in, etc., is very different to mine. And their experience of the police is very different to mine. And yet we live only a few hundred yards away. And if you're brought up in that atmosphere, you know, you can see how you might start to become more paranoid in situations that I would not find threatening or paranoia-inducing, but many black people do. And so the experience of prejudice, racism, social exclusion, um, I think we now accept is one of the big causes of these disparities. And it didn't, the difference from the, the debate 30 years ago was clearly quite a toxic, fiery debate. But once this was kind of accepted, and it was clear that I accepted it, and indeed the psychiatry profession does, and the college quite usefully put out a statement on Race, racism in psychiatry halfway through, which also detoxified the atmosphere at all, meant it wasn't a flashpoint. And indeed, yeah. the um, some of the best bits of the review are those written, you know, in the in the BME section. But and I fulfilled the promise that every single we have seventeen subgroups. Everyone would have BME representation, and everyone would have service user representation, which it did. And in general, that was very went very well and increased the um increased the the acceptance of the review when it landed and, and in general i think virtually no one opposed it as i say lots of people said it didn't go far enough fine i'd be rather worried if everyone thought it gone far enough but nobody said it was wrong yeah it's it's interesting once you like you said i think the the word detoxify is right once you detoxify mm. a subject and allow for conversations and dialogue to happen around the given area it's it's then very surprising how quickly real progress can be made yes and uh, and obviously we were lucky in some of the collaborators laddie smith uh, steve gilbert was the vice chair is a very 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 um amazing service user uh jackie dyer is one of our local councillors in lambeth but also very well-known uh, activist uh, um, in, in these areas, all of them were thoroughly on board with mm-hmm. the review from start mm-hmm. to finish. Uh, and overall, the service users were amazing. And they, but obviously, these really were service users. So during the course of the review, a couple got ill. That's what happens if you have you know, real service users, not token ones, as sometimes happens. And um, that causes, obviously, problems, but it shows that they were authentically new of what they spoke. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What do you think are some of the challenges of being a modern psychiatrist? Well, mm, I think that um, if you take a kind of longer view, you can see kind of psychiatrists come in in kind of three forms. So, 
you know, it, it, there isn't really a psychiatry until the end of the 19th century. It's meaningless to talk about it. It's only when the Germans get their grips on the classification of professions and illnesses that you start to see a recognisable modern psychiatry start to emerge, as you do all the other bits of medicine. And, and, and psychiatry begins from the madhouses, from the alienists, the trade in lunacy. Um, and, of course, that wasn't originally run by doctors, but would become doctors. Um, but... It starts out as being institutionalized. The only way to get into hospital is through um, a legal procedure. This is the act at the end of the 19th century. And all we deal is with madness. Then comes the, the um, it starts to get a bit more scientific. That's true. But then comes a huge change in which it really expands and takes on what had been not um, either the province of the general physician. So uh, depression, anxiety, um, somatic presentations, somatizations, etc., moves out of the asylum, settles in the spas of Central Europe. Actually, that's where that's where this change actually happens. It really does, um, and really expands. And in the middle of the 20th century, probably it's at its high point in public respect, etc. And just look at Hollywood films of the 30s and 40s. We're often the good people, you know. Do you think that psychiatry also took the place of? Um dealing with spiritual problems as well? I think to a certain extent, yes, I think that's probably true. But in particular, though, it, it really, I suppose, dominated the, what we would now call the common mental disorders. And then at the end of the 20th century, that starts to reverse. And we move back to being the severe mental illness specialists that we were originally. I wrote a piece years ago called The Rise of... Um, the uh, Return of Alienism and the Rise of Counselling, um, suggesting this is what would happen. And I think that has happened now. Most most mental illness is dealt with in general practice now. Um, most of us see just the more complicated disorders, usually the severe mental illness, not necessarily in children and things like that. That's not always true. But nevertheless, it's a narrower field than it was 30, 40 years ago. Um, and even though we have largely deinstitutionalized we have also narrowed our area of specialization. And that, I think, is a shame because many of the things that attracted many people to psychiatry was the breadth of what psychiatry covered. And in particular, some of the most interesting presentations are those in which psychology prevails, um, understandable psychology. And that's the thing medical students often really respond to is to see how psychological processes affect medical treatments. Mm -hmm. um, and that's harder to do now. And is that because now it's become largely the remit of clinical psychology as opposed to psychiatry? Partly, yes. And also some of the richness of psychological thinking has narrowed down. So the I trained in CBT. I was on the very few early psychiatrists who did actually, even in the 80s, I insisted on doing CBT training, not psychotherapy training. Um, don't quite know why actually but I did um, and partly because it was new and partly because it seemed to help the patients that I was seeing at that time but I have been worried for some time about the narrowness that we've we are sometimes adopting a, 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 what has become at worst a rather cookbook approach mm -hmm. here's the manual follow the manual six sessions yeah. 12 sessions um, I regret the general um uh, 
not exactly demise, but weakening of the analytic tradition, which I'm quite surprised that I would end up thinking that because I wasn't a fan at the start when I told Robin Murray I'd never read Freud. That was true. Um, but I think that kind of wisdom um, into the human condition that really good analysts have, I'm not, I think we're losing. And the ability to deal with really complex problems, both children and adults that just defy logic, um, and some of the really good group therapists, family therapists um, could deal with. I'm not sure that the current generation are well equipped to deal with that now. Certainly, you know, traveling around the country and, and uh, going to some of the, you know, what's left of the asylums and, and some of the big private hospitals, things like that, you can see the lack of those skills sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that worries mm-hmm. me. The sense I, I get, and I don't know if you would agree with this, is that. Um, and around the 50s and 60s, when you know the use of psychiatric medications really started to take off, when you know we saw as a profession what you know quick and profound effects these medications could potentially have, the profession started to move away from that sort of, like you said, psychotherapeutic way of thinking, that richness of understanding. But I think what's what now the profession is starting to wake up to is the idea that. It shouldn't be. It's a false dichotomy. It's not really an either or, and that in pursuing the sort of psychopharmacology route to the degree that we've had, we've abandoned that way of thinking to a degree to I, our detriment. I, I'm yes. In in general terms, I agree with you. It's much more extreme and dramatic in the U.S. So in the U.S. during the middle of the 20th century, they were completely analytic uh, um, driven, completely. All the heads of all the departments were analysts. Now. All the heads of all the departments are biological psychiatrists. Britain never embraced psychoanalysis that vehemently and therefore never rejected it so vehemently. And the social psychiatry, which is an eclectic tradition, really is a very British tradition. I mean, yes, there are Americans, Meyer and people like that, but it's really what you might call the British school of psychiatry has always been much more eclectic. And it still is, although not as eclectic as I would like it to be. But nevertheless, um, it's a broader church. We've never had quite the cultish attachment either to a narrow analytic view of the world or to a narrow biological view of the world. And I think the way in which we practice reflects that. Um, And I think that's partly British scepticism, which is always quite a healthy thing. And as I say, the rise of social psychiatry, which I suppose if you were to say there's any kind of dominant paradigm in British psychiatry, it has been that. And we have not fallen quite so heavily for the kind of ups and downs and fads and fashions of psychiatry than has been visible in other places. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit more stable in a way, a more yeah, stable, I, less extreme approach. Yes, I think that's right. Um, but I'm still not happy with the way it is still narrowed. Um, I'm a supporter of the IAPS, the Improving Access to Psychological Therapy movement, but I'm not a supporter of it um, pushing everything else out of the nest, as it were. I would like to see us having more family therapists, more couples therapists, and I would like to see us having more psychotherapists. Um, definitely would. And when I was president, we tried very hard to bring back the kind of bailing groups and the psychotherapy trainings into medical schools that we know played a, a large part in recruiting a generation of psychiatrists. I think we've been partly successful in that and there are many reasons why recruitment's picked up and I wouldn't like to say that's you know the only cause but I think it's played a small part in it yes I do and mm-hmm. um, you've spoken before about the rise of mental disorders amongst young people 
And I was wondering if you had any, what are your current thoughts around that on what's driving that, do you think? Well, first of all, um, we need to, you know, it's generally assumed that there is a massive crisis of mental health in this country. I'm not of that belief. If you look at the proper figures from, you know, proper epidemiological studies, as it were, that have been done over the years using similar methodologies, etc., we find on the whole for the last 70 years the rates of all mental disorders have been the same. Um, there's been no change in the rates of, of, of autism, OCD, um, bipolar, schizophrenia, major depression, etc., except when we change the criteria. Um, but this time round, if we look at things like the adult psychiatric morbidity, but other big surveys, there has been a rise, but it's not what the public think. It's been a rise in one group only, which is young women, 16 to 24, and it's been, in, in epi terms, it's been quite dramatic from, oh, forget now, I think it's 19 to 25%, um, which actually doesn't sound much to the population, but actually in population terms it's quite big. But it's only in that group, no no other group, even in, in, in young men, it's not changed. Now, obviously, demand has soared. Look at student mental health, you know, five over five years, been a five-fold increase in the number of people declaring mental illnesses coming forward, swamping the counselling services, etc., etc., and the number of people saying they have a mental disorder, um, if you look at student-led surveys, NUS, etc., around 70% of students say they have a mental disorder or a mental health problem. So there's this gap between what you might call the rates, as we would say, and the self-declared rates. And I think that's the crisis. This different, And I think one of the reasons is um, what you and I... And, and many people would not really call a mental disorder, for example, homesickness, loneliness, exam stress, relationship problems. But we would agree our problems of your me of mental health, but not disorders that require treatment. Or if they do, it's not the kind of treatment that professionals provide. It's not provide. medical treatment. No, no, and not professional. I'll go further and say it's not professional treatment. The solution to loneliness, I don't think, is counselling. It's a wider societal problem. Well, yes, but it's a social network problem. Um, you know, people are lonely when they leave home and go to university. Um, the solution is to do everything you can to improve their social networks, which leads me to the one thing that is controversial. I don't think social media is to blame. On the contrary, I think social media, um, at, at its worst, is a zero-sum game. But for many people, it provides you with a social network. Why is the Facebook film called The Social Network? Mm. And the one thing we all agree on, having good social networks is a prerequisite for good mental health and the ability to deal with adversity depends on your social network. Mm. So we should be investing in anything that increases your social network. You know, there's great trials going on at King's and UC and many other places showing how music and choirs, theatre, drama, sports, all of these things um, I mentioned mental health and football, great trials, actual randomised trials showing that getting males to participate in football, um, this is up in Scotland, in, in, the, in the clubs in Scotland, improves their mental health without a psychiatrist, a psychologist or a counsellor in sight. And that's where I would put my investment. Um, that, that makes sense. But do you, do you think, though, that um, part of the problem with social media is that it gives people kind of the illusion that they have a social network without uh, without them actually having to go out and have an in do socializing in person. Right. It's like a a, substi a poor uh, substitute. No, I think that's complete nonsense. Actually, uh, for two reasons. First of all, the social network is a social network. My generation might think that, but that's because we're my age. We 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 weren't brought up on social media. I'm quite certain that the the 
friends and, and relationships that people make online are real relationships. And I think it's um, we're just showing our age when, when we, we say things like that. Second is, I mean, I look at my own kids, OK? They seem to have, uh, who are born in the social media generation, they seem to have a far more fun life than I ever did. And they use social media to actually, it's not that they sit in their bedroom and do nothing else. They don't. They use it to go out and just go to the bars and the clubs in, in Brixton and Peckham and Shoreditch where they go. They're teeming. And they all got there because of social media. I mean, we never had anything like that. So, no, I think it's the me We're blaming the medium for the message, partly. And obviously... There are bad things. Clearly, there are the the the, um, the promotion of suicide um, needs to be sorted. Clearly, it does, and lots of other things. And bullying, most bullying, by the way, is still face to face, but some is online. All of these things, but we shouldn't blame the medium for the message. We've always had bullying. It's a, it's one of the most potent causes of adult mental disorder. Long predates social media and work done here, Louisa's, Arsenal's work shows most bullying is still face-to-face. -face. So, no, I don't think that social media curtails our social relationships. I would go the other way. And, you know, I try not to comment in general on these things because I, I'm not a, I do Twitter a bit, but my kids tell me that's already completely passe. Um, so, and I, I do accept that some, some things like Instagram do seem to have more mental health consequences than, for example, Twitter or, or Facebook and things like that. I do understand that's the case but overall i would say it's a zero-sum game and the big research done shows that if there is a negative effect it's quite small and dwarfed into insignificance by the known massive effects of abuse of uh, violence of um uh, of bullying, you know, bullying face to face, all of these things which have huge effect sizes on child, adolescent, and adult mental mm -hmm. health. Social media, family structure, do you think? Yeah, family, well, abuse, in most, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and indeed, cannabis, indeed, cannabis has a strong negative effect, much, much stronger than, than social media. So I think, as with all technologies, we go through a bit of a moral panic, mm -hmm. particularly because the people who write in the newspapers who do all this are tend to be more my age. I mean, not quite actually younger now, but nevertheless, they're usually from the preceding generation who are unsure about, scared of, not understanding of um, that what, what a new generation finds just you know the the, the air they breathe in and the and the water they they swim in or mm -hmm. drink in, you know. It's interesting because I'm somewhere in between the older and the younger That's true. Yes. generation. So I would have started using social media when I in around 2005, when I was 16 or so. And um, I suppose my worry would be that it, there is room if you if you allow it to. Social media can take up a large amount of your attention span and a large amount of your time. And I feel that it can. There is a tendency to make the communication that you have with people. Firstly, more superficial, and secondly, lacking in some of the core factors in normal in-person communication, by which I mean non-verbal body language, facial expressions, things along those lines. I think probably it's too early to tell what the full impact of social media is because it just hasn't been around for a long enough period of time. Intriguingly, of course, one of the things that social media is blamed for is the fact that people don't write letters anymore. And they look back on the golden age of letter writing in the early 20th century and 19th century, 18th century, where it was the main means of communication. Um, and we all treasure the anthologies of great letter writers, etc. It was quite clear that people made hugely powerful relationships with people they would never see ever. So, again, 
I don't, I don't buy what you've just said. I know, I, know, I take the point you're making, but I think we have very narrow memories and we forget about how, you know, communications have changed largely for the better. Um, and obviously, yes, there are problems, but when, when, when people, when the wireless came along, when telegraphy came along, when TV came along, um, it was always assumed that it would be the end of family life as we know it. It was always the case in the end of the 19th century, there was a huge moral panic about the arrival of the wireless telegraphy and that um, in one year, 1881, I think it was, one million telegrams were sent in one calendar year and people said, well, this is just clearly overwhelming people How, and they would arrive at any hour of the day and night. Society will not survive this. The brain is not designed to deal with one million telegrams a year. I don't know how many emails are sent a second, but I understand it's far, far more than that. Um, so, you know, it, it's about our fears, largely our anxieties of change um, and a particularly of technological change. Yes, and it is good to hear a counterpoint yes. <laughs> because it's quite a common narrative. It is, yes, narrative. I know. But I, I think um, you know, I, there are many aspects I don't like, but these are not to do with the media. It, it's the domination by large supranational uh, companies that don't pay their taxes and aren't, aren't answerable to any democratic process. But the same applies to the oil companies. When they first appeared, exactly the same arguments were made about the, the, the I think it was the Seven Sisters or whatever it was called, that dominated the world economy or the commodities uh, markets, things like that. that. That's corporate conglomerates and cartels. Uh, yeah, and I think they are of great concern, but it's not, it's just to do with their dominance. And, and the lack of any democratic accountability and yeah, that they don't yeah. pay their bloody taxes. <laughs> That's that probably, infuriates me. Yeah. Um, talking more about the relationship between mental health and physical health, which really is another false dichotomy, probably. Um, where do you think the UK is at in terms of the difference between the delivery of physical health care and mental health care? Well, clearly, um, there are big disparities. Um and this is the parity of esteem argument. Um, and clearly, when I was prez and my successor and my predecessor all continue to work, and, and the new one, wherever it will be, we'll find out tomorrow, uh, we'll all continue to work on that. And, um, and the things that I talk about most are where we have kind of unfairness. So where, you know, here we have kings on one side of the road, the Morsi on the other, one has a car park for patients, one doesn't. Uh, one has beautiful art, one doesn't. One has a lovely Maggie's Centre, you know, with, with um, beautiful ponds and all this kind of stuff, um, where it's probably not needed, whereas our side of the road, where, where being in a therapeutic, attractive-looking environment is more important than ever, you, you, you name it, we haven't got it. And that's what I mean by parity of esteem. I don't mean that we should treat physical and mental illness the same, because I don't think they are the same. And, um, and I remember chairing a meeting at King's last year, Hannah Jane Parkinson, who's the Guardian journalist, Young Journalist of the Year, she's won, I think, twice now, and Columnist of the Year, who has bipolar and has been sectioned and has talked about it and indeed does get ill. And uh, someone in the audience said that, um, I think, you know, what, 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 we, what we have to do is um, um, having a, a broken mind should be the same as having a broken leg. And she lost her temper and she said, I've broken my arm and... I've also been sectioned three times. And I tell you now, they are not the effing same. <laughs> and, and I thought she was absolutely right. They're not the same. 
and we shouldn't pretend they're the same. And um, I don't think it does a service to either side of the road to think that they are. And I, I uh, and I know some people think we should treat them exactly the same, but they're so obviously not. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's you're just arguing that they should be both given the same amount of weight by society. Yes, the same respect. Same respect. And people should be treated in similar, can you know, you know, Kings now some of the, uh, I don't know, cancer scare last year, and the way in which I was treated was amazing. The speed, the technology, the fact you don't even queue at a reception anymore. You log in. You know, I didn't know any of this. I mean, this was it, guys. It's amazing, and there's a wonderful coffee bar, and you can sit. And they and then then they text you, so you don't have to queue. You know, when it's your turn, so you just go up, see the consultant straight away. You have the, have a CT scan in an hour. We don't do that, and we should. What What do you think? What do you want to see from the government to try and narrow this gap? Well, I think the key thing for them is going to be: Will they maintain a commitment to fund mental health at the same? proportionality that they have now so i was very disappointed during the campaign and also before it this, that when um, they announced i think was it 4.2 billion for um new hospitals new acute hospitals that's fine no problem with that excellent very good and then 70 million 70 million for um new investments in community care now that was a pr disaster and because that is the you know i didn't expect that we would get 4 billion but we were hoping to get 800 million to reinvigorate our estate, some of which is still, you know, Victorian. In fact, the Victorians aren't so bad. It's some of the 60s that are dreadful. But that, I thought, was a dreadful message to send 4.2 billion, you know, new Leeds general and all this kind of stuff, and then 70 million. That, I thought, was awful. I hope, I hope. And that's the campaign promise. That was, well, it wasn't. It was before the campaign, actually. It, it was, was a government statement. Yeah. I think it was. I think it was just mismanagement, but I would like to see, we've asked for 800 million to re, if we're going to detain people against their will, remember everyone else has the ability to leave hospital. If they don't like it, they can leave. But the one group who can't are those who've been detained. And yet we treat them now in the kind of surroundings that sometimes are frankly disgraceful. Not everywhere. Some places are very good, but many are not in the way in which they look, they're dilapidated, they're scary, they are devoid of any stimulation. And if you know, if you weren't ill before, you certainly will be afterwards. Um, and so we worked out with the Royal College that the cost of investment in the estate was around 800 million to bring it up to even a reasonable standard. And I think it should be a superior standard. It was great, you know, in my two hours in guys going through the cancer pathway. But you know, had it been a bit run down, I really wouldn't have cared because I was only there for two hours and I came home. <laughs> but if <laughs> if I'd been detained there, it would have been different. And do you think this tendency to allocate funding so disproportionately is because fundamentally this is often a section of society which doesn't have a voice, which doesn't have um, a lot of power? Well, obviously, yes. Uh, that's reflected both in the voice of psychiatry and the voice of our patients. Now, things have changed. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the changes that have happened through service user organisations, through psychiatry becoming more mainstream during the uh, the amount of media coverage given to mental health and psychiatry, all of this has soared, and that can't but have some political impact. But A, still not enough, and B, 
there been some little signals coming out of this government that make me think that um, the, you know, better years that we've had may be coming to an end, that they may feel, look, we've done mental health now. And I'm, I may be wrong. I could be wrong. But it makes some of it, some of the comments make me nervous. Mm-hmm. If you, this is a loaded question. <laughs> if you were a young doctor now, which speciality would you choose and why? I would still, um, I think there are two two separate questions. Um, when I was 15, would I have gone into medicine again? I'm not sure. I might have stuck with the arts, done a history degree, gone into journalism. I don't know. Um, but having done medicine, I definitely would go into psychiatry. Um, it's treated me very well. It's got a lot going for it. Um, it only ever will attract a small number of medical students, but that number's going up. And there's that, you know, nice study showing actually we're quite, we're, we're among the more satisfied of the professions. I think palliative care is above us, but we're a lot more satisfied than cardiologists or surgeons. Yeah, you can you, see why. You have more flexibility about what you do, providing you're not the kind of doctor who likes being treated standing on a pedestal and has three ski lodges and four wives, then um, you, you know, you won't like psychiatry if you want people to treat you like a kind of godlike person. You've got it. And that's, again, if you like being challenged and you like debating and the great thing about psychiatry is a we have debates but b normal people can understand it and normal people can challenge you and they're invested in it yes people are um i've told the story before but my best mate does leukemias and he's a specialist on classification only about eight people in the world understand what he says and <laughs> and most of us aren't one of them um and but that's not the case in psychiatry people understand the issues but I think, and if, you, if you're the kind of doctor who doesn't run to things, there are some doctors who like running. Interventionists. Yes. And also the, you know, the, the quick nurse, give me the brain needle, the cardiac arrest bleep and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's fine. But psychiatry isn't like that. We walk more sedately. We think a bit more. Yeah. Um, all of that. I think if you're that kind of person and you accept that your successes take longer and your patients will publicly be less welcoming of that um when i started out i treated a famous actor um who'd had a been sectioned with bipolar well, we called it manic depression still then and um and i was still looking after him doing lithium levels in the clinic and i saw him in the national theater and he walked straight past me and then when I saw him in clinic, we're talking 35 years ago now, so you can't work out how it was. But when I saw him in clinic, he immediately apologized, said, oh, I saw you in the theater. I'm terribly sorry, doctor, but, um, you know, sorry I didn't say hello. You know you, how it is. You know how it is. And I'm thinking if I'd been his cardiologist and, you know, we saved his life and he knew that. We'd saved his career and he saved his life. And he would have said, oh, there's my doctor. Best seats in the house. Champagne for the doctor. Come and meet Laurence Olivier. But he didn't. And I knew straight away that that's how it was going to be. Yeah. And, and it's okay. Yes, yeah. If you need that kind of stimulation, you're not going to like scratch. You're not going to get rich. There are, if you're doing it for the money, you've really made the wrong career choice. You really have. Um, but in terms of quiet satisfaction, I think there are a few things to beat it. But in terms of the interest, it's still remarkable. It's still remarkable. And there's also so much to do. And I do think psychiatry is where neurology was 100 years ago. And, you know, neurology went through a period of transformation. It didn't happen overnight. It took two generations. But I think we're also in that transformation. And psychiatry in 2040 will look very different. Are there any media, sort of books, TV, film that have 
changed your life that you would recommend? Well, well, I mean, there are, but but I wouldn't recommend them now. But what had a huge influence on me and was part of my reason as a medical student to choose psychiatry was Anthony Clare and his book Psychiatry and Descent, um, which came out um, when I was a medical student and completely turned me on to psychiatry because it it did so in going through the areas in which psychiatry was controversial, but in, in an even-handed, balanced and fascinating way, because he could write and he could speak. I don't know what the new psychiatry and dissent is for this generation. Um, I really don't. But I do think that there'll always be great writings in psychiatry. There always will be, and um, both in novels and non-fiction. Um, so I, I, it's not for me. The kind of books that appeal to me won't appeal to a new generation. I'm well aware. It's like giving advice. Why, never are you sure? Because I, yes, think, I think sure. they could potentially. No, I mean, never. It's like also, you know, I'm, I'm, oft, I'm often asked, often, and you're not going to do this now because I'm going to tell you not to, but it's to say, what advice do you have for in, a medical student now or for a junior doctor? And the answer I always give is don't invade Russia. And I think that's very good advice because advice from people, I mean, I remember getting, well, I don't remember what the advice was, but I remember pompous people talking to me at graduation day, wherever, who'd done you know, reasonably well, but couldn't hide their smugness and giving advice to me when they were 35 years, 40 years older. And the advice was meaningless. And I know the advice I would give now would, is meaningless to this generation. So I don't. I, I also say don't accept a police caution. That's also mm-hmm. very good advice if you want to be a professional. And that's it. <laughs> what's it like being married to a doctor? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, what's it like being married to the particular doctor that I'm married with, um, uh, who's Maltese like you are, uh, Alex, um, and very well known? Um, scary, mm-hmm. but challenging. Uh, very, no, I mean, I. I God knows how our kids turned out okay because we were rubbish parents and, and the one thing they both decided to do, I think almost from the moment they were born, was not to do medicine. Um, that's certainly true. But um, oh, I think it's fine being married to a doctor um, as long as you... I think the only... The only we, we used to take very good holidays and very important to have good holidays and we used to always go to places where we couldn't work. That makes sense. Yeah. so It's harder to... nowadays because of email and... Well, um, you can either you can go skiing when you're too tired, you can go cycling when you can't carry laptops and you're too tired, or we used to go to parts of Africa where there was no electricity. So, you know, the famed uh, social media and laptops, etc., died within a day, including for the kids. Mm-hmm. And then we used to kind of read books, play cards, teach them games, and we were quite good parents for a while. Then as soon as we got back to the airport and everything came in range again, we returned to the appalling parents that we were for the rest of the year. I'm not making that up, actually. That's quite true. Just wrapping up, I usually ask my guests if they have a question for me at the end, just to turn the tables. I know I've asked you quite a lot. When when I decided I wanted to do psychiatry, I was doing finished my membership. I'd been offered a PhD in Newcastle in liver studies. And then I said, no, I want to do psychiatry and I'm going to go to the Maudsley. Um, most people reacted with surprise. Um, and the commonest thing, they said, well, that's strange. You're, you're too good for that, aren't you? And um, which was, in a way, a slight compliment, but also not a compliment at all. Um, do, people, do people say that those kind of things to you when you announce that you, know, you were going to move yeah. Psychiatry. Yeah, various comments. So I had one person tell me, "Don't you want to be a real doctor?" And I had another person tell me, "But you're such a good doctor. Why would you do that?" Yeah, the same. 
So um, that hasn't changed then. How yeah, disappointing. No. But, you know, maybe in the future, who knows? Well, my favourite story was I worked at Queen Square in the Institute of Neurology, the National Hospital of Neurology, and uh, I was, there was only three psychiatrists there. I was one of them. I was a junior. And then people, the neurologists, used to come over and say, well, you seem a decent enough chap. That's how <laughs> they spoke. They still do. You seem a decent enough. I can't understand why you do psychiatry. None of your patients ever get better. <laughs> and you remember thinking, that's a bit rich, isn't it, from yeah. the neurologist yeah. and the neurologist, where nobody gets better. Yeah. So I know. So some things haven't changed then. What a shame. But it's almost good to have a bit of resistance to push against, you know, it kind of helps you in your career. Yes, yeah, it does. Well, pro- uh, Professor Wesley, I'm conscious of your time, but thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Pleasure. You are listening to the Thinking Mind podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd love it if you share it with a friend. Or you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you fancy it, you can even buy us a coffee to support the team. And the links for that will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening.